Hey everybody, welcome to We've Got Ward, a doof media podcast series where we expertly dissect and discuss Ward, Wildbow's return to the world of parahumans. My name is Matt Freeman, and I'm speaking to you from hundreds, maybe thousands of miles away, but that won't protect you. And this is my co-host, Scott Daly. Please don't say my name or address me in any way. Anyway, this is the weekly podcast where you and I eagerly dive into Wild Bo's world of swinging balances of power, spoiled boarding school dictators, and alien-based death powers as we analyze and interpret this ongoing web serial. This week, we begin Arc 9, Gleaming, and this arc starts off with a bang, Matt. First, Victoria finally comes to the comes to the team about the nature of her force field, prompting other team members to lay their cards on the table. Then we get an equally long-awaited meeting with Amy and Goddess that ends uh, pretty badly. So, Matt, what did you think about these two introductory chapters of our new arc? These these are great. Um, I feel like we've been building up toward this meeting for the entire story. Yeah. And it's finally happening, and it's extraordinarily well written in terms of prose. I think we're going to get into a lot of examples of that uh, in both, both of these chapters. Yeah. Um, extremely tense and, and interesting and intricate in terms of all of the characters. Um, you know, we've, we spent all this time setting up and establishing these characters and, and getting to know them and understand them. And now we're sort of letting them, letting them run in certain ways. And, and, and we're able to interpret, you know, we're able to to read a lot into 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 relatively small things, which is what you can do at this point when you've built up this much knowledge about the characters. Yeah, I I do. I the I think the text like is fully aware of the um the the buildup that has been going on to these moments. That this is a, these are long awaited moments in the story, and it uh, it responds in kind. The, the, a lot of the writing here is very good. The text is very lofty in places but i also think i I like that it's not afraid to subvert that expectation too right like there's there's moments where the text meets exactly what your expectations is but there's little little beats of it where characters and moments uh, subvert what you think was going to happen um it's just a lot of really good fun writing and i i found as we were going on that i just kept saying matt i like this this like i just took a quote and just like matt i really like this i don't know what else to say about it other than this is fantastic. Yeah. Um, hopefully we'll have a little, a little bit more to say, but yeah, I, I think I wrote more than the normal amount of mini essays. Um, in, you in the did. Course of the script I saw that because there were just so many things where I was like, this is doing so much and I have to talk <laughs> about it now. And it um, is. Yeah. And I, I promised myself when we did our whole fire and water thing last week that I wasn't going to like, get too carried away with this and start relating everything we see back to that. But these two chapters made it really, really hard not to do that, um, which we will get into as well. Yes. Uh, All right, let's move on into announcements. So first of all, the voting on the fourth quarterly doof media parahumans fan art contest. Yeah, we uh, need a, we need a better name for that. Shorter name for that (laughs) has, has concluded and we have a winner. The winner is King Daum who made we Can Try Again, a beautiful and heartbreaking depiction of Kinsey telling the story of her foster dads. Yeah, I remember when we got this one, um, it, it, this submission, Matt, and I was like, holy shit. Like, yeah. I think I forward them all to you when I get them immediately because yeah. I, I need you to see them all as soon as possible. But yeah, this this was an incredible piece of work. Well done. Congratulations. Uh, I 
so floored with this contest every time. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I uh, can't wait till everyone, you know, can can see this. Uh, and then the runner up uh, this quarter was Lucas, who made the seating chart, uh, which, as you might guess, is an incredibly detailed depiction of Kenzie's terrifying seating chart document. Yeah, I, the detail in this thing, Matt, like you need you need to open this big and like zoom in on the different segments of it, because Lucas put so much detail into the into this artwork. Um, he said he spent a lot of time on it and it absolutely shows. Yeah, there's not a line on this thing that doesn't mean something. Uh, right, I, I love right. it. Yeah. So, yeah, amazing work to the two of you. Uh, we'll be in touch shortly via email regarding how to get your winnings. Yeah, and you can find these two winners and all of the other entries over at doofmedia.com. Uh, um, if you're listening to the audio version, it'll be out. If if you're listening to us live right now, I haven't, I haven't made that yet. But um, we'll show all the entries over there. You can check that out. And you can check out all the other entries um from all the other previous contests too uh, what like matt I, I love doing this i love doing it so much and i can't wait for next quarter yeah i agree this is always really exciting congratulations to everyone who entered thank you guys so much um and keep keep arting yeah definitely definitely all right um so now for the community spotlight where we read read what people wrote from last week's thread the discussion question from last week was discuss techniques Wildbow uses to make you quickly empathize with point of view characters. Less really smart analytical responses this time, Matt. I was very happy with these. Yeah. Yeah, me too. So uh, first hero of old iron points out one of the things Wildbow does that I found easy to copy in my own writing is to establish um, basically use bold or iconic statements to anchor a character's tone or mindset and build on them until we're familiar enough with the character to just run with it. So stuff like, um, uh, I hate my power, hate it so much. Um, I'm a tinker. I'm supposed to be smart. How could I have been so stupid? Um, he donned his mask golem now golem thought. So like, and, and there are more of these, um, Oh yeah, I, I'm letting you go. Regent lied. So th these are all either opening lines or, or, you know, big kind of impact lines for point of view chapters where I don't even have to tell you what these characters were because um, you probably automatically remember because they're so they're so suggestive of like yeah. every, everything we know about those characters, you know. So, yeah, I, I love this idea of giving them a big, a big it doesn't have to be an opening line, but like a defining characteristic line that just sticks in your brain and just recontextualizes the character so fast and so quickly. And I, the one that really stood out to me in their example was that kid win one where he said, I'm a tinker. I'm supposed to be smart. So how could I have been so stupid? This is a guy that I like laughed at <laughs> the entire early part of, of worm. And we get to see this interlude and it completely like opens him up as this, this guy who has so little faith in his ability and it just changed everything. And that's you're like you're you're with them like that. And you know, don't forget those lines, even as you read through the rest of the chapter and the rest of their arc in the story. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So next up, Arena Venera um, said that in most books, they hate point of view switch chapters. They're one of the leading causes of them putting a book down and never quite getting around to picking it back up again. Um, even in Wildbow's writing, they often start out the interludes thinking, ah, do I really want to read this? But the difference is by the end of the chapter, they're 100 percent on board and they go on to list six different things that they feel um, are really good ways in which he does this. Um, one of the things he says is writing in first person. And I mean, the the interludes are kind of interesting because they're they're like they're third person, 
but they're like third. They're they're not third person omniscient. They're third person. They're close. Single yeah. character omniscient. Yeah. Like we we hear. Yeah, I guess I guess that's close. Yeah, that's called close third person. You're right. right. Um, right. Yeah. So I mean, that's I I like that it distances it from the first person perspective that we get in the other characters, but it's still enough to where we're in those people's heads. Mm-hmm. Some of the other things Arena says is long chapters that move quickly. Um, the characters are all different and have real internal lives. And this is a, a big one. Lots of re- little relatable human things. And they say that the example that comes to mind from last chapters of Victoria taking a bit longer than necessary getting food so that she doesn't have to stand next to her therapist to check the checkout line. And that's something we'll be talking about here this week. Mm. And that's very true. These these little little beats of human moments that uh, that define these these as not constructs, not uh, characters, but, you know, people. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, there's there's all kinds of I, I love I love this answer because it's like, yep, all of these things are, are true and and not necessarily obvious. Yeah. Uh, next from Satlom01. Uh, there's an inf- there's an emphasis on writing characters as people, not just constructs. And you can see this especially with his less than savory characters like Crusader, Purity and, and Hookwolf, who are all point of view characters. Um, but like if you take one like Crusader is a man who's neglected by his parents and grew up to be a misguided person struggling to change society for what he perceives to be better. Um, and then you can kind of go through all, all of the characters who are, you know, bad people they have their backstory. They have their reason why they're that way. And the text isn't trying to make you like pity them, but it is trying to make you see them as human and uh, understand them, understand them. Yeah. Get in their head. Yeah. 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 And next we have paradox who I think takes um, the idea of that big impactful opening line and, and spreads it out a little bit. They say that um, the interludes have these, these introductory series of paragraphs, which, which go out of their way to establish the character in their central in their central important character traits um he points out the uh danny's first interlude which is this this it, it's so funny going back and reading these things knowing what we know matt like the first three or four paragraphs of danny's interlude are like this perfect little just a little bit of establishing everything we need to know about the setup of this character like he's up late pacing because he's worried about his daughter um and he like we get a little bit about how he usually goes to bed early and, and um, like he like just, he's sitting there waiting, but unable to do anything. It's just like, it's like we quickly establish in these opening paragraphs. The thing that Danny is most concerned about within our story is this constant worry about Taylor. And that is what kind of carries him through all these other things that we get to know about him as we go. But that's this initial establishing thing. The same thing with the Caden chapter. Um, she starts off and, and immediately we see her with her baby. Like that's the way the arc opens and her baby is the most important thing to her. And we contrast that with Theo, which is a person she is so concerned about her kid that she forgets that he's even there. Um, and I, I love this idea that like there's the, the, the intros are so important to this establishment and just, you know, these little small, like easily rememberable and understandable beats about their character that, um, can just carry you through the rest of the stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I love that. 
Um, that's definitely something to to be picked up and, and used in writing uh, to, to like basically get right to the point, you know. Right, right. From Shinichi 07, Shinichi zooms in on the Chevalier interlude for an example of this, showing how immediately following the Behemoth interlude, we flash back to Chevalier's humble beginnings. He basically fast forwards through Chevalier's entire cape uh, life so that by the time he strolls out to take on Behemoth single-handedly, you understand him and I think you adore him by that point. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of shocking to even remember that like that's all one chapter, right? Like, yeah. like, like you, you, Chevalier is just a, some guy, and then within one chapter, you get to know him, and then he does the thing where he stands up to Behemoth. Yeah, that's that's awesome. Yeah, I, I love that so much. Uh, Calinero says that he strikes a very good show don't t- tell balance, engaging us with mystery. We're usually dropped into a character's shoes without knowing who they are. Is this a known hero, a villain, or someone new entirely? Because of that, because of this unknown, we tend to latch on to every detail, trying to figure out who it is that we're reading, and that makes us more receptive to the, te- the techniques that Wildbow wants to use. Uh, it goes on to say from there, it's also important that Wildbow does out details and information at a good enough rate that we don't get bored looking for information that isn't there, but also maintain tension by not revealing everything at once. I think that's that's a really good point. That's something we've talked about this, this maintaining the tension we've talked about many times throughout the story. And we've we've said how it makes engaging and quick reading. But I think it also helps with that, you know, point of view empathy stuff where you're you're kind of trying to figure them out. You're more open to take in information when you're trying to solve a mystery. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think these, I, I like this answer because it actually points out um, at, at least one kind of balance, like like a, the show don't tell balance. Like, yeah, it's, he's doing show don't tell, but he's also not making you, it's, he's not, it's not a puzzle, right? He's, right. He's, he's efficiently giving you the information you need, but not in a, in a way that's just handing it to you. Um, he's, he's making you engage with it. Yeah. Um, and that's, that that is a balance and uh i think it's actually hard to strike that balance because you when you're writing you want to either give the reader all the information or maybe you're like well i I shouldn't just tell them everything i'll (laughs) I'll, I'll make it harder and then it's like well then now you've made a frustrating puzzle right so it's it's definitely difficult to strike that balance it's it's one of those things that feels so easy from the perspective of a reader, right? Like when to dole out information because you're only seeing it as it comes and you're like, Mm -hmm. well, the correct way to dole out information was the way that you did it. But when you're sitting down with a blank piece of paper, making that decision on when am I going to reveal this? When am I going to hold this? Yeah. Those are, those are hard decisions. And it, I, I, I like, it's so, it's so it's like, if it's done well, it's unseen. And I think that's the best writing, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I agree completely. And then uh, last in this list, FIP Industries says related to Wild, uh, they basically re- related Wildbow to Hollis Mason's Under the Hood, a fictional autobiography from Watchmen, which begins with the advice that the best way to start a book is to relate a sad or tragic anecdote so that you sympathize with the narrator. And this is something Wildbow does a lot. Uh, FIP says put characters in bad, difficult situations almost immediately uh, because failure is relatable. I think that's very true. I mean, mm-hmm. there's a lot of bad shit that happens to these characters. Yep. All right. So if that was it for all our answers to the question this week, really good stuff, guys. Um, I love I love how these discussion questions allow us to really dive into some of the technical aspects of the writing, the the how to, you know, yeah. um, I'm really enjoying them. Me too. One more thing before we moved on, just a general note, uh, Ranku Abadir, sorry for mispronouncing that, pointed out that 
the character rain kind of exists as an in-between the the fire and water symbols that we talked about last week when when he introduced himself he literally calls himself yes like the water that comes down from the sky but we learn later that his full name is rain o fire uh where he also got his powers from and the bonfires that the Mathers bonfires that he participated in um, were pretty instrumental to his brainwashing. So he's kind of existed this character that um, is part of one and part of the other and kind of in between. And I like that a lot. I, I, I thought about rain a lot when I was doing um, the uh, parsing through the symbolism and I just, I wanted to include some of it, but I just didn't, I, I didn't feel like there was enough for me to like definitively conclude on something with that. So I just kind of left it out. Um, but I mean, yeah, I think he does very much exist in these symbols for sure. Yeah. I think ever since we've cottoned on to this idea of, of the, of the color and, and, and element symbolism in the story, um, I've been noticing a lot more and also my opinion on what it's meaning is, I think is more complex. Like the, the, the more I read, cause I'm like, well, yeah. that, it's not just, it's not just good. It's, it's nuanced. Right. Yeah. So. I mean, like I, I think. My, my my conclusion was kind of like distilling it down to its most simplest. It was like water, bad, fire, good, right? But I think it's it's so much more complicated than that. And those those meanings are going to change and evolve over the course of the story, which you know hopefully they should. Yeah, yeah, definitely. All right, um, all right, yeah. So let's move on into nine dot one. Uh, so Victoria's tension in this chapter is conveyed from the very first sentence. Oh yeah, I paced, and then in fact. The whole first few paragraphs are dedicated to showing how she's just so tense that she almost can't physically fidget enough for it to help. Yeah, I mean, this is these are two very intense chapters for our our protagonist who is already kind of reeling from bad shit that happened uh, a couple a couple a day ago. I think it's a day ago at the start of this chapter. Um, she's not in a great place, and now more stuff just keeps kind of compacting on it. I think this is really important because we took like a two chapter break from Victoria's point of view and now we're back in it and we're kind of reestablishing just, you know, how bad off she is, like how she's doing and it's not well. We kind of crash back into her point of view with a vengeance and we're like, oh yeah, she's doing bad. And I think it's setting the tone for the this 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 whole week's worth of reading and perhaps, you know, the whole rest of the arc, this idea of tension, the tense, difficult conversations and how she's reeling and reacting to those. I love the imagery of her using flying to push her body down and like kind of using that pressure as a way to relieve tension. The use of like physical pressure to relieve like mental pressure is is very fitting for Victoria, who's a girl that kind of like enjoys when she just gets to punch away problems um, this, I, this is like, you know, Temple Grandin invented that, that deep pressure box thing, right? Where actually people that are, are, are very stressed out in very tense situations can get into a thing that just like surrounds them and puts pressure on them and it calms them down. And this is kind of Victoria's super powered version of that thing. I really love that comparison. Um, and, and yeah, this is the kind of thing where like none of us has super powered flight, but you can somehow imagine exactly what it would be like to use your super powered flight to push yourself into the ground. Yeah, I mean, like, it's <laughs> it's such a realistic, like, depiction of how flight would work when you have a super... Because it's not just, like, it's not flight in any way that a human being does it or any other living creature does it, right? It's, like, right. literally just all the different parts of your body are deciding to levitate. Yeah. <laughs> and so you could force. just turn... Yeah, right. you could just turn that force the opposite way. 
Yeah. Yeah. It's it's really inventive and I think perfect to show how she's trying to solve her problems. Um, But it's not going too great. Nope. Um, Yeah. So all this is being set up is tension. And I think that perhaps we're meant to wonder if the meeting that she's waiting for is the meeting with goddess um, and, and, and Amy, but no, it's just Dr. Darnall who steps out of the elevator. Yeah. That, that was my reading too. We have this opening where she's so tense that she's trying this pressure therapy. And, and that was my immediate assumption that it was like, this is, this is, this is it. This is the, the Amy meeting. Um, also goddess will be there, but the, this is the Amy meeting. Here we go. And I think it's constructed that way. Um, I think, I think it's meant to kind of throw you off and subvert your expectations a little bit and show you just how bad Victoria is because you're expecting this to be the goddess meeting. And then an elevator opens and it's her therapist. And you're like, Oh, you're actually in a real bad shape. If you're this tense over talking to your shrink. Um, and I think that that subversion of expectations, like makes more clear your picture of how bad Victoria is doing. Right. It, it calibrates you because you're yeah. like, Oh, Oh, that's a great <laughs> yeah, word. Yeah. yeah. We're, we need to be really, really worried about this meeting then. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I love the description of Darnall that she gives here. She said he was dressed down from prior times. I've seen him wearing a sweatshirt over a t-shirt, jeans and nice shoes. He looked tired as fuck with lines in his face. Victoria drops the F-bomb a lot. But it sticks out to me here because it's like it's really harsh and abrasive in this moment. And I think I think that's just matching her mood. Like, I don't think she's ripping him apart or anything. It's just it's just she has an edge to her right now. She's really tense, really edgy, and it's coming off in her internal monologue as well. And I think I think it's in my interpretation of this is I think on some level she knows exactly what the result of this conversation is going to be. She ends this conversation basically being told, you got to tell your team about the rich. And I think to me, she knew that going into it. And it was just she was hoping that she would get a little push from a person because she can't she can't make that decision on her own. Yeah, I agree. And I think we're going to step through exactly how that that works here. Yeah. So, yeah. So she's returning to the hospital where fume hood was taken when she was shot. So it's the setting that we were returning to in order to show the progression of the construction as time has passed, uh, which is both a literal thing that's happening and also perhaps there's a symbolic level there Mm -hmm. and then victoria describes the setting mostly in terms of concentrations of light and dark with raindrops refracting that light into crescents i love this so much on top of that wonderful water imagery that just that, that kind of taps into what we were talking about i love this this cold distinction between light and dark um that again, I think is working to, to get us very clear in, in Victoria's state of mind. We have a building in which Victoria is naturally uncomfortable. She doesn't like hospitals in general. It's just bad memories. She's nervous about being here because as we said, I think she knows how this conversation is going to go. But we also take the time to show that this, this particular hospital does have good memories in it for her. When she did the crisis team stuff, her, her, her friendship with fume hood, um, there are good memories here. And now we have this, this, light and dark this complex mix of good and bad light and dark and victoria points out here that the light is where the people are not and the dark is where the people are i think which further illustrates to me her uncomfort in this whole situation like i I think victoria would probably prefer to be in darkness right now but that's where the people are and she doesn't want to be around people yeah i mean and i think it just it it's an image that that actually makes you a little bit uncomfortable and it makes you share her 
her, it makes you feel like her, puts you in her head. You're in this room, these, these, you know, uh, aggressive two bright lights and then uh, people clumping in darkness. Like it's kind of a, it's almost creepy, even though it's yeah. just like, yeah, this is just like, it's just a hospital. People are just, it's just how it is. It's, there's nothing malevolent about it. But if you were in this environment, you'd probably feel like a little, um, um, uncomfortable which is yeah. what she feels exactly yeah yeah and i like that you said about the the lights because yeah these are the, this is not natural lighting this is not from fire or from the sun this is fluorescent lights these are harsh overly bright intense lighting she she describes it herself as intense um it's uncomfortable light and she's uncomfortable in it and it, it, it in a chapter where victoria is basically working up the courage to tell the truth, it doesn't surprise me how bright the bright white glaring light of truth, quote unquote, is the thing that's making her so uncomfortable. <laughs> I like that. So her and Darnall awkwardly go through the line at the hospital cafeteria together. Yeah, there's that little that little character beat that uh, I think it was Arena was talking about um, where she just kind of takes longer than necessary so she doesn't have to stand next to the person and make small talk, which I don't know about you, Matt definitely done that before oh totally it's like i see like my boss or someone else at my work that i don't want to i don't want to because he's going to ask me about something and i don't want to have that conversation so yeah just hang back pretend like i'm having trouble picking my chips yeah and avoid that whole interaction very relatable or if it's like a close friend and and you've like had a long nice conversation together and you're like well see you later you know it's been a great conversation (laughs) and then you both stand up and start walking the same direction yep that's also the worst thing in the world anyway um (laughs) So they agree, uh, the two of them agree to structure the session as a normal one, and they start to go over her homework, which she's apparently been given, uh, which was to track her mood. Uh, Victoria describes how, unless she was diligent with writing things down in the moment, she found it very difficult at the end of the day to remember how her mood had been over the course of that day. Uh, So then she describes how she used hints from her music listening history and text messages to forensically reconstruct what she must have been feeling during the day. Yeah, this I mean, to me, this shows just how like detached she is from everything. Right. That like she can't she can't remember how she felt at certain times, Um, even when he pushes her, like, think of that specific moment. What were you probably feeling in that moment? I I don't know. And she says that, you know, she has trouble remembering what day something happened, her days are blurring together, events are blurring together. Is this, what day is it? Is this today? Is it tomorrow? Like, and this is partially understandable because she's very busy right now, but it's showing that she's so focused on the job, the work, the mission that any, any idea of self-care, any idea of like observing and being aware of yourself is kind of been pushed to, to the side. Yeah. I mean, this is very, um, empathizable if that's a word um Mm -hmm. what's what's the correct word there anyway sure um, empathetic just the the idea of you're not doing well but you know that if you go do the the thing you know be it school or work or hobby or interacting with people whatever it is then you'll be able to lose yourself in that thing and you won't be feeling whatever it is you're feeling when you're alone and forced to dwell with the thing that's wrong um, I think it's very easy to kind of medicate, if you will, with um, distractions, even yeah. if those are valid distractions or even if they're things you should be doing. Um, it, you know, she's she that's what she's doing. She's distracting herself from 
her problems by diving into her cape work. And I think that's yeah. what's being pointed out here. Yeah. She loses herself in the, in the music, uh, the moment mom's yeah, spaghetti. She owns it. Yeah, okay. Um, so <laughs> I think the most interesting thing about this, like when she constructs what she must have been feeling using text messages, using music, she's surprised how, how positive it is. Like, like there's this, like she says, I was surprised by this positive trend and I let my guard down. It led to outbursts. So when she goes back and looks at what she was doing via like how she thinks she was during this time, she's like, Hey, I was, I was positive then. And that's surprising. I'm doing better than I thought. And, but then she takes that further and tracks that down to, Oh, I thought I was doing better. I let my guard down and this is why I had my outburst. This is why I used my powers in the middle of that show is because I thought I was in a better place than I was and I let my guard down mm -hmm. and it's my fault. And I, I, that's like Victoria's guilt for the, the bad things that happened to her is everywhere. Um, and I think we're seeing it right here again. Like, yes, you should not have used your powers. Yes, you shall probably should have been more aware of of, of yourself there. But like they 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 pushed you like that. This was you were set up for this. Like, I don't think you I don't think you take full blame of this thing. That's a great point. Yeah, no, she definitely carries way too much guilt and yeah. and interestingly the the hosts knew to go after that uh for things that make no sense like yep you couldn't yep. save your family from leviathan fuck those guys yeah uh so then victoria goes on to describe how everything is bad <laughs> some b-list nut jobs just came after a kid that would never fly before gold morning they put our lawyer lawyer in the hospital we haven't caught up with them yet, despite me sending, spending a few hours last night on the hunt. But the consensus seems to be that it's stupid, petty people seeing us putting our faces out there and wanting to ride the wave of attention. I had a kind of aunt who died for pretty similar reasons, similar feeling reasons. And remembering that's really bothering me. And then my sister gets thrown into the mix. She's the one thing I can't handle. I can't deal with thinking about her on a good day. Now I have to face her on a bad one. Yeah, that's... um a whole lot of bad stuff yeah. Matt it's and, a whole lot and part of the reason I wanted to read that out is to kind of use this as a as a jumping off point to talk about how these therapy appointments are are being used in this story and how I love this device because mm -hmm. I think the, the occasional use of therapy appointments as a narrative tool does more than than just this but among the things that it does a main one is to help underline stuff like this like the, what Victoria just did is say here's everything that's going on and here's how it's affecting me in ways that I may not have even admitted back in the moment when it happened um and and then the conversation continues you know and, and the, the therapy appointments in general are adding a level of complexity to what the story can talk about it, it's not just here's a character and their flaw and an arc where we kind of indirectly address that flaw which is I think how you know 90 percent of stories go more or less um yeah it's more like here's a character and their flaw and then here's how they react to being made aware of their flaw and then here's how they thoughtfully grapple with their flaw or perhaps fail to and then maybe here's how another deeper less obvious flaw is interacting with what they think their main problem is and we're watching all this play out both in the story and then kind of in the microcosm of the therapy session yeah i think that's that's very well put i don't have too much to add to that at all um I think exposition is kind of one of those necessary evils in storytelling, right? You need, you need to have moments where you explain things, you explain what your characters are going through. 
you just have to find a way to make it interesting. And I think that that's what these therapy sessions can do the most is, is take this, these really, I mean, these are like trauma and, and how people are dealing with it and how not only just the trauma exists and must be hopefully overcome or get to a point where you can, you can live with it, but the complex day to day dealing with that and how we do that. And without these therapy sessions, I think it would be very hard to illustrate that to mm-hmm. a reader in, in a way that like makes sense and isn't just a character randomly talking to her friend about all this complex stuff. Like it, it's, it's a very, it's a very well done device. And I think it's one, it's a, it's the reason why wild Bo returns to it so many times is because it just, it allows you to get so much more complex than you could normally be. Mm-hmm. But he, yeah, and, but he doesn't return to it all that often, which I think no. makes it like we're kind of, by the time we get to another one of these, we're like ready for it. We're, we're almost hungry for it to get like less, some, some more insight. Yeah. I, I, it serves as like a, like you said, like here's all the stuff that happened to Victoria and here's how she's doing with it. Like remember we, we just went like two arcs and all this stuff happened and now let's catch you up on, on how our character thinks she's doing with it. And then, yeah, the subtext is there is the, the real problem behind that. Yeah. yeah. So then the therapist challenges her on a lot of the stuff that, well, I guess we've challenged her on. Like, you know, hey, Vicky, seems like you're not really taking great care of yourself despite being aware that you need to. And you're consistently grasping for control of situations in a way that only further destabilizes the situation. Um, And this all forces Victoria to face what she's doing and and either reevaluate her actions or to justify herself explicitly. And it seems like she chooses the latter here because she kind of responds, I had to do all that stuff because reasons. Yeah. And I love that Darnall doesn't really push her too hard on that. Like, I think he has a very good understanding of if I if I push her too hard, too fast, she's going to bug out on me and I'm going to lose her and this whole relationship will be over. So he like I think a lot of his therapy seems to be like kind of like facing her in the right direction but allowing her to learn the lesson herself. And I think mm-hmm. that's probably the best way to, for Victoria to get to a better place. Um, yeah. Jessica, Jessica made good choices here. Yeah. He's really not pushing. He's just kind of like, well, you know, he, here's this and then I'm not going to push on it, but you're probably going to think about this after we walk out of here. So, yeah, I mean, he's, de- you're right that he's challenging her, but like, I think it'd be very easy to say like in this moment when she says, look, you need to, you need to face what you're doing and change. And she just, she just justifies. And he could, he could have very easily said, well, no, you're just justifying stuff. But he, he lets her talk it out and he lets her process through it. And he's there to kind of direct the conversation, but not control it. And I think that's really great. Yeah. I think that's, it's kind of how a therapist has to be. Otherwise they would not have a very long, they would not have a lot of repeat customers. Sure. Yeah. I want to focus on Victoria's need for control that Darnall like pretty, expertly highlights here like victoria even admits that that's that that she does want to grasp control of situations and she says in this this wonderful speech where she says the fallen chaos and ignorance the community center attack short-sightedness more chaos with civilians caught in the fray hollow point chaos and greed the invading invading soldiers from chet secrecy and ignorance we combat the chaos with order and the ignorance with the sharing of information we combat the greed by being selfless and, and I love Victoria's mindset is the is the problems of the world are all caused by these things, chaos, ignorance and greed. And in order to defeat those things, we must combat them with order, communication and selflessness. And these are 
you know, very noble goals. Absolutely. But Victoria's issue, as I think Darnell expertly points out here, is the aggressiveness at which she asserts that level of control over these things that she she must make this happen. Um, And this this all centers around Victoria's fear of losing control. Right. Like that. That's her big thing is Amy took control of her life away from away from her control of her body, control of everything away from her. She took that from her control of her mind almost in her in her head because of, of what she did. And so the idea that she loses control over a situation absolutely terrifies her. And this leads me to that thing that there's a reason why throughout the story so far we've had so so many characters that either had a power around mind control or like just were cleverly able to convince people of doing things um, through not not a power mind control, but through, you know, uh, suggestion and and um, charisma and that kind of stuff, because that is something that Victoria fears the most. And we're going to see that at the end of this reading, too. Yeah, um, I, I like, you know, I didn't notice this until you pulled this out, actually, but it's interesting in her little spiel here. She she uses the word chaos three times to, you know, she describes the fallen, uh, the, the, the hollow point, um, and the community center attack all, all as being chaos in one sense. And what's interesting to me is like, when I think of the word chaos, I think of, I mean, chaos is just the absence of order. Like it's right. But, but Victoria in her mind seems to have like chaos seems to have its own power in, in her mind. Like she thinks of chaos as a force, like, she, she doesn't think about this explicitly, but like reading kind of between the lines, it seems like she thinks chaos has its own energy and, and, and order has its own energy and they're two forces that are fighting. I mean, that, that's it's simply not how I see it unless it stands out to me quite a bit. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that's absolutely accurate because when she's thinking about because um, Darnell calls her on it, says you didn't mention your sister. And she so she's thinking in her head about Amy and about goddess and like, are these people agents of chaos Um because she sees herself as an agent of order. Um, and I think the, the, the irony in that is that I don't think goddess is an agent of chaos. If no. anything, goddess is an agent of order. We see what her power is at the end of this, uh, these two chapters, the, the ability to control people. Um, she almost represents the exact kind of seizing control of a bad situation that Victoria wants. And I I, like we've we've pulled this out a few times before how much Victoria's desire for um, making things better in the world so closely mirror some of our antagonists and and the things that they're trying to do. And yes, they're they're approaching it from different angles and, and doing things that Victoria would never do to to get there. But the goal is so remarkably similar. Yeah, and and this may be a bit of a off the rails thought, but like it kind of reminds me of kind of the Knight Templar character archetype where they're they're lawful good, but their their rigidity brings them to do horrible things, and that's you know that that's kind of the fun direction you can take a character who's oh they're they're so devoted to orderliness that they're willing to commit atrocities. Um, so yeah, that's it's just interesting how she's she's rather black and white about this whole concept of of chaos which is basically just people i don't like they're chaos (laughs) oh man i can't wait to talk about goddess because yeah oh boy okay let's get there yeah so um darnell mentions that he doesn't think she should attend the meeting with amy um or even if amy might be present and uh, victoria says uh no i'm gonna do it (laughs) 
Uh, but then he segues to pointing out that she really needs to share a few things with her team. Yeah, I mean, like it's that's so interesting to me, right? Because she, she's it's not just that order must defeat chaos. It's I have to be there. My order like Victoria, you should not be at this meeting. Like, I think everyone in the world would agree you should not be at this meeting. And she's like, well, if I'm not, I might lose control of the situation. It's like, well, you've got your team there. I mean, like. You should not be at this meeting. This is a bad idea. And that's like just totally dismissed. Yep. Um, and like, I, I think <laughs> I think that this this is like th- I think she rejects that because, again, I don't think what she's here is that I think what she's here for is his segue to the pointing out that she needs to share things with her team. Like we said before, I think this is what this is the outcome she knew was coming. And this is so this is the thing. This is the part of the thing that she accepts that um, I need a little push to get to the point where I'm going to reveal the things and he's going to get me to the point where I get that little push. Yeah, no, it's interesting. If you, I mean, if you track back through the whole conversation, Darnell doesn't really get any wins. Like he doesn't, he doesn't yeah. point anything out and have her be like, "God, you're right." You know, she's just like, "No, of course I always did the right thing." But yeah, th- this is the one thing where she's like, "Yeah, okay," but but I think you're right that she came into this wanting that to happen. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I, I love like before we move on. There's just this this moment where she's like begging her doctor, almost like. I need whatever coping mechanisms you can give me. I need whatever tools and tricks you can give me to get through this meeting. It's like his answer is don't don't go. Yeah. She's like, no, I have to go. Give me whatever you got. And he's just like, yeah, that's not. Yeah, that's not my bag. Like, that's not like that's not the type of therapy I do. I'm here to help you get better long term. I'm not here to just equip you with more coping mechanisms to get through the day. And it's like, I mean, those are necessary. Like coping mechanisms are necessary to exist in this world, but he's not a short term solution guy. That's yeah. not the kind of type of therapist he is. Right. And, and th- so it's just like, nope. Yeah. In this case, the, the coping mechanism is don't put yourself in that situation yet. <laughs> yeah. 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 Especially yeah. like recall, he's a cognitive behavioral therapy guy. So like his, yeah. his whole shtick would be, you know, we, we actually, you know, I'm, I'm kind of putting myself in his position and and maybe exaggerating my understanding of what he would say exactly. But like, yeah, we want to get you to the point where you can be exposed to the things that trigger you without freaking out. Not necessarily that you want to be around those things, but you want to not have to freak out about them every time they happen. Um, we're not there yet. So exposing yourself to your most triggering triggers prematurely is just going to initiate your panic response yeah. which will emphasize in your brain the traumatic association which will which is literally backpedaling don't do it until until you're until you're ready and and she doesn't let li- like yeah she doesn't listen so mm-hmm. yeah and i mean it, it like i think it's i think it's so, like recovery is hard right this is hard stuff and she is part of this is her you know own internal need to wrestle control away from everyone else and, and asserted herself. But part of it is just the world that you live in, right? Like recovery is difficult for anyone. Recovery is super difficult for these people and they are dealing with life or death stakes here. So it's like, it's so hard to get better or to recover from, from the things that are making your life hard while also feeling like you have the entire universe on your shoulders because there are these huge threats and I, and like it just compounds all this stuff. 
for yeah. her. So like I understand, like I understand why she feels she needs to be at this meeting. I get it. But yeah, I'm on Darnell's side here. Don't don't go, Victoria. Don't yeah. do it. Yeah. She does she does it. She, she does. She she does. So then we cut to a little bit later. Uh Victoria is visiting Natalie in the hospital. Uh, though we did skip the part of the conversation where Darnall convinces Victoria to share with her team about the wretch, we now see that Victoria is fully back in the grip of her body dysphoria. And as we're kind of, as the writing is giving us a feel for this, we're also getting lots of rain and water imagery as uh, it happens. Yeah. Can we zoom in on this a bit? Cause it's so good. Yes. So I didn't feel great as it happened. I was less Victoria Dallin and more the arms, legs, body, and head of Victoria Dallin, very aware of the clothes she wore and the movements of this body. With the rain outside, people came in with wet hair, umbrellas, and coats. Slick wetness slid across bare hands and occasionally the face. Lurching bodies periodically bumped and brushed up against the body of Victoria Dallin. Um, the, the writing here, the imagery, it's so powerful. And the rain, I think just the, the wetness and the rain just reinforces then that the slick wetness on the hands and face, the lurching bodies that bump and brush the third person removed access of it all. Like all of Victoria's coping mechanisms are collapsing into the one, the original coping mechanism that she had when she was in the, in the hospital, which is this is not me. And the only way I can survive is saying that this body is not me. I'm removed from it and it's so tragic yeah yeah it's it's and somehow yet again you're able to put yourself in her position um because the writing just puts you there yeah yeah and then there's this one more line that i just had to pull out because a rain slick umbrella licked its way along the length of my arm uh that's so good like this person in the middle of like uncomfort and fear and terror at their own body and a, a umbrella licking its way up your arm is just i love it so much yeah i love it it conveys just like every sensation is unpleasant and unwelcome yeah because yep. normally an umbrella brushes your arm you're just like okay i'm wet now yeah but, no, i'm wet this sucks yeah yeah right but but no. this, this is like uh, it didn't just brush her arm it licked it yeah exactly so good yeah So a lot of people in the hospital are recognizing her. Most of them glare, but maybe 10 or 20% smile at her. One in 13, baby. Everything is going according to plan. Yep, yep. This is what what we wanted. Yep. (laughs) A bunch of glares and a couple smiles. Yep. So Victoria uh, describes Natalie's family interactions and contrasts them with how her own family operates. Yeah, this is wonderful little family dynamic scene, and Part of me wishes Victoria didn't didn't draw the line between Carol and her mom as directly as she does. I, I don't think it's totally necessary for that line to be drawn. I think we we get it. But that's like a really minor quibble in the grand scheme of things. Like Natalie is sitting in a bed in a hospital and her entire family is here. Her mother is doting over her, caring for her, concerned about her. Um, when Victoria was in a similar hospital, she got none of that. Yep. Yep. <laughs> um. I just thought this was a great example of this. There was no sentence the mom didn't react to, whether it was dramatic expressions, eyes widening, or posture shifts. Um, I, I don't know. I just like that completely sketches this character for you, and you're able to imagine her the, the, her her reacting and behaving this way throughout the entire scene. 
Yeah, but I think it's it, it, it does. It, it sketches this character wonderfully, but it sketches Victoria wonderfully, too, because these reactions, some of them are bold and ostentatious, but some of them are small little things like posture shifts. Like these are things that Victoria is catching on, like small things that Victoria is noticing because she is so very aware and conscious of the relationship between these people. She's looking at it. And I think that shows to me, you know, just how much she wishes she had this thing. Um, because she's like she's like watching her mom so intently that she sees, yes, some dramatic expressions, some eyes winding, but some just like posture moves. I think that's so great. Yeah, that's a really good point. I didn't, I didn't think of it that way, but I think you're exactly right. And then there's this this one line that seals this all, Matt, where she says where Natalie says, my mom is embarrassing. I love her, but you can't tell her anything. Your mom, I know for a fact, is awesome. It's, it's almost as if they from each other's perspective, their other mother is better than theirs. Yeah. Yeah. It's almost as if perspective changes things. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I love that. <laughs> Something, I feel like we've said that 700 times yeah. on this but, you uh, know, the, podcast so far. But, but also at the same time, it enables them to relate to each other because sure, yeah. they're both like, yeah, I don't get along with my mom, even though it's hard to see why, you don't get along with your mom, but yeah. I mean, yeah. It, it, so it's, it's a cool, it's a cool scene because this is kind of, you know, we saw, we didn't really see much interaction between, between these two characters after Natalie's heroic stand. Um, yeah. And now we're back with Natalie who, you know, we, we, we knew she was okay, but it's good. To, it's good to touch base with her. Um, so Victoria offers Natalie some concealer makeup um, for her scars and she's also brought her a tartan blanket, which seems to make Natalie extremely happy. Yeah. We said last week that we thought that Natalie's effort in this whole Kenzie attack thing were sufficient to finally earn her place on the team. And this is Victoria kind of confirming that for her. She has gifts. She has makeup. Um, she's talking about fashion with her. Like, if you ever want to wear like a strapless shirt, here's the makeup for that. I love yeah. Natalie's like, I would never do that. But <laughs> thank you. Um, it, yeah, I mean, they they have bonded in a way here. And you're right. I think the, the, the parent situation helps helps move that along um, later at the end of the section. She calls her the unofficial eighth member of the team. And I just love that this this relationship has kind of come to this point now. We've seen it slowly, slowly improve over the course of the book. And now she's she's earned her spot. Mm -hmm. And I love that. Yeah, me too. Um, so yeah, so she, she finally, she finally works her way around to telling Natalie. <laughs> yeah. And so she tells her first, Matt. Yeah. Um, she tells her first. Yeah. Tell, and yeah. I mean, like, I think that it makes logical sense because the place where she finally decides she's going to do this is Natalie's already there. Right. But this also feels like a warm up for me because as much as Natalie is part of the team now, she, her relationship with her is not as close as with the rest of them. So it's like this is probably the easiest person on the team to tell. Let's say so let's get that one out of the way first and, and do a little little practice run, a little warm up before the big game. Yeah. Um, so I just love how this is placed on the page. I'm going to have to describe it because. I mean, you can just go look at the text, obviously, but it's harder to say with words. So she, she's talking and, and she starts to explain it. And then she says extra heads and then dash and then paragraph break and then following dash extra arms. I finished. My voice was quieter with each word. And 
so yeah, there's it's it's just a really really interesting, and, and it's not it's not distracting either. It's not um it's not like a distractingly ostentatious punctuation choice. It's just it's just like yeah, her her whole being like record scratches here. She's having so much trouble getting through this. Yeah. But but she does it and she's like deflating like a balloon as she does, but she she says what she needs to say basically. She 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 broaches the topic. Um and it it it, it gets it gets its own punctuation. It's a, it's so hard for her. Yeah, I mean I, I love it. And and whenever I see things like this when we talk about how his his paragraph construction, his his sentence structure and how he structures the actual page, I have to think about how would this have been different if it was done a different way? Like there's a way to write this sentence where you can get across the fact that Victoria takes a long pause here. You can say, I took a long pause. <laughs> like you can literally just do that. But this is more than just taking a pause. This is almost as if the book like stops yeah. like the, 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 her, her narrative, description of what's going on just like freezes because like it's such a hard terrible moment for her that like the book breaks and then it kicks up again and a moment later so it gets across that that pause and that difficult nature but it's so much more impactful than just um explaining through text that she she had to take a pause between those words yeah yeah no i i like that a lot it reminds me of um something from uh, another another book that i read where the the protagonist sees something so horrible that basically a sentence ends <laughs> mid sentence and the next sentence picks up mid sentence and it and it and yeah. you're yeah um yeah that's kind of what this is doing i like you said record scratch and i think that's exactly what it is it's like the record of this story like just hits a bump and just like stops and then yeah. and then kicks up again and a few a few seconds later yeah yeah it's it's wonderful um i i also like it's a subtle like it's a less important part of the sentence to me but my voice was quieter with each word i think is really impactful too like from emotion an emotional standpoint i loved when you said like it's like she's deflating like a balloon as she says it like you can imagine just like each and every word is so hard that you just have less and less energy to get it out with each each second that goes by and it's just so so awful but she does it i mean she she does it even even as she says there are lips, a tongue and a throat that aren't hers that are doing mm-hmm. it. She's still doing it. Yeah. Yeah. And again, we don't really see how that conversation goes exactly. We we skip again to her showing up at the team headquarters and we have the lines. Sveta's first words on seeing me were you're drenched, which uh, <laughs> again, water water imagery you think he's just fucking with us <laughs> nah nah no um yeah i i like from a like from a story structure perspective the decision to not show her walking natalie through that entire conversation makes like dramatic sense like you want the time it happens to be with the the group the big one um so i like i like i think it's it's very economic storytelling to just say I'm going to, okay. And now I'm going to tell the rest of the story and move on to the next part. Um, yeah. I think that was a smart decision. I think it would have bogged down things a little bit for her to have to do it twice or something. Right. And I mean, and, and we already know the information. Right. So, so the only point of that would be Natalie hears the information 
and Victoria struggles to deliver it, which we're going to yeah. do kind of again here anyway, like you said. So, yeah, yeah, I, I kind of love that it's Ashley here who is really glad to hear that Natalie's OK and who wants to send Natalie a book or something. Yeah, it's almost as if Natalie saved Kenzie's life, Ashley's favorite person. It's it's you talked at the very beginning of the podcast about, you know, that we know these characters so well so we can extrapolate out from little tiny beats that don't explicitly say what they're about. And that's I think that's one of them to me. It's like we know how important Kenzie is. So, of course, Ashley's going to be the most happy with Natalie after this. Yeah. Yeah. There's stuff later like like that in this in this very chapter where my brain got like vapor lock from like the number of tiny like offhand things that are happening with each of these characters where I'm like, well, okay, I I can't just read the whole (laughs) chapter and talk about every single thing. Right. But that's the depth in which there is meaning to everything that everyone says. Yeah. And yeah, I think this is a great example of it though. I mean, we, yeah, we can't pull every single one of them out, but this is a great example of that is, is everywhere throughout this chapter. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so finally Victoria is able to steal herself and interrupt the easy banter of the team. And she says, it's too, it's too glaring a weak point. And if my sister's out there, it might come up. You need to know what she's capable of. So before we move on, I just want to make sure Victoria gets her props here, Matt. Um, we tend to give her a lot of hard time. And I think, I think we're just analyzing her actions and, and showing, you know, what, what I think the book is, is saying about what the, the good choices and the bad choices she tends to make. But the amount of bravery it takes to do this should be commended. Mm -hmm. I think especially in how the scene is set up itself. Like she gets there, she's made the decision, she's going to do it, she's going to tell him. And then she gets there and like everyone's kind of like just small talking and like there's this wonderful teamy banter back and forth between all the people that she feels so comfortable in. And it would have been so easy to just let it go to just say now's not the right time to just exist in this this warm comfort of the the team situation as it is but she doesn't do that she steps up and despite everything that she's feeling and suffering she steps up and does what she needs to do and i think that is absolutely commendable and she should she should get all props for that because that's so courageous it's I, i can't imagine how hard that is to do and she does it yeah, and it's the kind of thing that it's it's only been getting harder as the story progresses because because yeah. it's like well now it's like with any secret like once it's the, the longer the secret ferments the worse it is. Yep. The the, the idea of revealing it, um, and then we get you know before she even really gets to go into it, Chris says she changed you, <laughs> um, and I just have this feeling like that line is going to read really differently when this is all said and done. Yeah. Um, Chris's reaction to this whole thing is very interesting and we'll focus on that more in the next chapter. But, uh, yeah, uh, this is, this, this does feel like one of those lines. You're right. That under totally like, like the Kenzie smiling thing that under, under new context, uh, the meaning like opens itself up like a flower. I think, I think yeah. you're absolutely right. That has, it has that feeling to it. And it's cool. Cause like, we know that there's going to be something with Chris. We don't know what it is though. So yeah. that's, that's fun. Yeah. We learn a little bit, a little bit this week though. Yeah. A little more. True. So now Victoria takes everyone out into the rain and <laughs> flies out into the open space, then brings out the wretch showing them its shape as outlined by the falling water. And, um, kind of want to read this whole part, I guess. Just do it. Do uh, it. 
and as the rain came down, droplets ran down and wicked off, momentarily tracing the wretch in its entirety. The arms, the heads, the faces, the hair, a tangled flowing of nude flesh, parts repeated over and over again, with me in the center of the mass. I didn't look at it, keeping my head down, my hood down where it covered most of my face. She can do this. My voice didn't sound like me. Change powers by changing the host's physiology. She made the S-Class threat that took control of everyone, bringing them to the battlefield. That's who's going to be at the meeting today. I swiped my arm down, and at an angle, the wretch threw the planks down toward the foot of the fire escape. Um, so I didn't notice until now, actually, but um, the wretch totally did just what she wanted here. Yeah, and I, I don't think it's unintentional that it's planks of wood, which are the same thing she tried with earlier that, that failed, right? Um, mm -hmm. We're supposed to be able to draw a direct line between her lack of control of the wretch earlier and now seemingly improved control of it. Yeah, and and what just I'm just going to read way too much into things here and point out that this is the fire escape. Okay, yeah, that's probably too much. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so this... Uh, Matt, this is amazing. The the rain outlining the wretch, which ironically is now protecting Victoria from being drenched. Like she was drenched before and now with the wretch out, she's not getting wet. She's protected from the rain. Um, that's an image that will probably come back in the next chapter. Um, but let's talk about how Victoria frames this thing, though. Like we talked about, yes, she's so courageous for doing this, for telling the truth to her team. But the way she frames this is unsurprising. She said, this is not about me. I'm telling you this because of Amy. This is all about Amy. This is about what she did so you can know what she can do. You need to know about me and, and what happened to me for these reasons only. This isn't about Victoria. This is about Amy, which of course has a, a nugget of truth in it, right? She, they, they do need to know what Amy is capable of. Um, but that's not really why she's doing this, Matt. That's not really what it's all about, right? Right. Yeah. I, <sighs> I feel like this is what maybe pushed her across the line. Right. But, but ultimately, I mean, that's I mean, there are lots of other reasons why she needed to tell them. Yeah. I mean, like her whole thing is combating ignorance with communication. Right. Like that's one yeah. of the three things. It's like I have to like the reason why bad stuff happens is chaos, greed and ignorance. And so I have to communicate. I have to be this person. Um, it's time to walk the walk. Yeah. But it's, I mean, yeah. To speak of being chaos. I mean, she's. Every time she brings the wretch out, it's chaos. Yeah, so. yeah. But I, I think this is so important just for her general mental health too, though. Like, she's acknowledging this thing. Like th this is this thing is a part of her. As terrible as the memories and the reason why it is there, it is a part of her. And sharing that with the people around her who care about her is important. And I, and I don't think like it's not an accident to me that. It's it's not like she's embracing the wretch in this moment, but she's like acknowledging it on some level, like accepting it as like by telling other people you make it real um, and, and make it something that you can't ignore anymore. And it's it's a thing that exists and everyone knows it exists now. And there's a level of acceptance there, I think. And in this moment of acceptance, she controls it a little better. And I don't think that's an accident. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. Um, I'm not entirely sure what to make of that, but I, I like your your take on it. Yeah. So then we move on into 9.2 and uh, we're basically picking up pretty much right on the tail of that last scene. Victoria observes the reaction of her team to this revelation. 
Uh, she considers that she's probably not perceiving their reactions accurately, but that being aware of that doesn't necessarily help. This leads to a line of thought about Amy having been a social misfit, not really belonging in the group of popular and or parahuman kids at school. Yeah, and that, this lead, that, that path of being the odd one out and the odd one in and the differences between those two things, I... <laughs> I love that so much. This idea that no matter where you are, you still you're still odd. Um, yeah. that, that being inside the group can make you feel just as unaccepted as as being outside of it. And and how this awareness on of both her sister's oddness and by extension her own, she has to think about the two sides of every interaction, every discussing. This is a Victoria whose entire existence was ruled by her parents and the capes that they were, and we're seeing that here. Like. I'm going down a rabbit hole with this because I think Victoria is going down a little bit of a rabbit hole with this, but this is why this is another reason why I love Victoria as a character so much. I think she'd be a sufficiently complex character if she was just Victoria dealing with the thing that Amy did to her. That's, I mean, that's, that's complex. That's a lot. There's a lot there, but she's more than just that because even before the things that Amy did to her, she was a, woman with a lot of issues like she has serious issues with her mother serious trauma related to the pressures of being the child of capes and and what that means and and we see that like she in this moment where she she shows the wretch to everyone the thing she falls back to is not the moment in the hospital the thing that she's thinking about is not her time as the wretch but her time as part of a group and being unsure if she's in this group because people actually like her or just because of her powers or the thing that made her feel ostracized and outside the group is now making her feel alone while still in it. And I, it's so fascinating to me and I love it so much. Yeah. Yeah. I, that's, that's, that's really, it's a very complex idea that's almost offhandedly introduced and, and then just moved past. Um, I think it's pretty cool. But it's just the layers of her issues, right? Like it's yeah. like even if you even if you process, you get to a point where you 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 process the thing that Amy did to you, and you get to a place where it doesn't trigger you, and you go down a rabbit hole. Like that's not Victoria done with her problems, right? Like she's still got this huge Carol shaped problem, and her her issues with her family as a whole out there, and it's just there's so much here. <laughs> And I think that's why she's such a this this complex layered character that there's no there's no easy solution here because every problem is so complicated. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So as she continues, she's she's thinking in the abstract about distorted perspectives and she thinks about how back in the day, back in Brockton Bay, her perspective was distorted by anger anger at the refusal of Brockton Bay to become civilized despite the best efforts of her family and her allies. Um, and basically the feeling that she needed to just punch it harder. Yeah. Yeah. Whenever I see stuff like this, it makes me think about, uh, Victoria, when we met her, this, this bully, this like overconfident, stuck up, pretty blonde that Victoria was perceived as when we first met her. Right. Mm -hmm. Like the, the, she came off as such a like uncaring jerk that like we just immediately didn't like. And, and then we see what was behind all that. Right. Like th this, this extremely relatable idea that no matter what I do, it's not enough. Again, that reflects right back to scapegoat who was saying the same thing a 
couple chapters ago that it didn't matter how hard we tried and how much we did. Um, it was never enough. And we kind of see where his path took him on that and, and hers is taking her to a different place because they're different people. But I just love, I, like we talked about empathy for characters and recontextualizing and all this stuff. And, and I love that we, we now see where this anger, well, this, this, this bullying glory girl came from. Yeah, I, I love that. I mean, that's definitely a theme that's echoed from scapegoat, this idea of, of people being angry that they, that their best efforts weren't enough and how they react to that. Yeah. I think that's probably something that we, I bet if we thought about it, we'd find more examples of that. Yeah. Well, we'll keep an eye out for sure. Yeah. yeah. And this is when she makes a statement that I kind of think kind of defines this whole moment for her, that the truth didn't always correct distorted perspectives. It could just as easily create them. Comforting lies and illusions were important. And this happens the arc after they just revealed the truth to the world. Right, Matt? Um, yeah. So she's revealing they're revealing truths of the cape she's revealing truths of herself and is fully admitting that the truth itself is not going to solve the problem it actually could create problems yeah right um i think in the final analysis she probably believes that it's better to reveal these things it that she doesn't get a yeah. lot of relief from doing it like she doesn't no we, we don't get a, a line that's like i finally felt the weight off my chest of having unburden myself of this secret it's more like nope everything sucks pretty bad um i hate having I, I hate that this is true and i hate having to let people know that it's true yep um yep. which is very understandable yeah there's all there's this other little moment matt where byron switches to tristan in a kind of i can't handle the shit right now moment um mm -hmm. or more charitably in a you probably need to be there with your team, Tristan. You are probably better at taking control of the situation than I am, which yeah. proves to be exactly right. But yeah, or, or or just like you're maybe even like you're closer to Victoria and she might need you right now. I mean, yeah, yeah I, I thought that was interesting because I wasn't actually able to pin down exactly why that would have happened. But I like like you, I kind of thought of a couple different reasons um, yeah. why that might have happened. Yeah. Still um, still worried about that whole situation yeah oh we'll we'll even be more worried about it in a second <laughs> um but it, like just in terms of small things like it says i saw some nods kenzie looked very serious tristan too chris looked disinterested yeah it's almost as if victoria revealing a giant truth about herself and amy's responsibility for it didn't sit well with chris i wonder what that's about matt yeah yeah I, I'm being a little I'm talking sarcastic, but I wonder what that's about, Matt, because yeah. we don't actually know. Yeah. Like what the hell's going on? Yeah. Um, the, the Kenzie thing, it just makes me feel like if if Kenzie were like trying to smile reassuringly, then that would make me think like, oh, Kenzie's really freaked out. Right. Right. But the fact that Kenzie looks serious actually makes me think like Kenzie might actually be glad that Victoria is is sharing and trusting her with this um and yeah. or she's just actually taking it seriously i mean uh, i think i i don't know if it's glad I, I i think it's definitely important that we take the time to show that no kenzie is not doing her smile which means she's stressed out an uncomfortable thing here um i think probably on some level kenzie knew about this thing already like we got a little hint of that yeah chapters ago but also with the level at which kenzie like studies video i'm sure she studied like Victoria fighting video like crazy 
and yeah. probably notice something. So um, it's probably like just connecting dots and realizing things. And um, yeah. yeah, I mean, I think that's yeah deliberate. Yeah, I don't want to simplify Kinsey down to like the the dimension of she has two emotions, um, you know, like that, because because I, yeah. don't, I don't believe that. But no, I, no, it does. The way we've been primed, you definitely kind of automatically interpret certain things in a certain way. Right. I mean, I think. We and Victoria will be looking to Kenzie in this moment and seeing, OK, is she smiling? Because we know what that means. Right, and the right. fact that the text goes out of its way to confirm that, no, that is not the case. Seems like we're sending a very clear image um, that. Whatever her her dealing with this this thing is um the kind of nervous stressedness that we've seen her get is not what it is i agree perfect yes um so then it's tristan who manages to change the topic to the more tactical ground of thinking about how the hard-boiled hosts knew about the wretch and victoria's past um and victoria recognizes that uh, he did indeed do this to basically change the change the subject. Yeah, and she, the, her interpretation of this is entirely positive, right? She says there's nothing but good will will hear. He recognized how hard this was for her, and he steered the conversation away from it to help her out. Um, and and I think in this moment, like she she uh, like bonds with him a little bit, even more than they had before. Like she sees something in common with him. Tristan, she, she admits here that Tristan is the guy who throws himself into the mix. Like he, he wants to get up in the stuff to get control of the situation. And that is very much the type of person that Victoria is as well. So yep. I think that's a bonding between their two characters, um, which I think is going to be important as more stuff with the, the, the Tryron problem. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm going to call it, <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's very clear. Um, so it's mentioned that Azur succeeded in arresting Hookline and Sink, and apparently Love Lost wasn't happy that uh, Hookline and Sink did that. Yeah, I love that little bit of information, right? That that they acted out of her control. Um, it makes a certain amount of sense when you remember that a lot of the people in Love Lost group are Ashley's friends, and Ashley would be furious and probably want to kill them all if she knew that they ordered this yeah um yeah but i i I like that these two are dealt with off screen here i I like that the book does not show victoria and the team be part of the mission to take these two down and we have another cape fight where we take them down i don't think it's necessary um i don't think it fits the pace of the story Victoria's got bigger things to worry about right now. And so the, the fact that this is just kind of taken care of off screen works for me um, to keep like to keep the pace of the the story going. Um, it also, I think, shows to function shows to sh- show that the hero organization is functioning, you know, even with them in this kind of rough state where she's not doing well. Things are happening and other groups are are doing exactly the way they wanted to function, where the group that had the personal vendetta against these people was breakthrough, but it's another team that takes them down because we don't care about credit and, and who gets what and stuff like this anymore. It's a small little thing, but I think it's doing a lot. Yeah, no, that's, I agree that I think that was handled perfectly. Uh, There's also passing mention of the fact that a lot of the more charismatic Cape faces are either away or just got back from being away. And we've been aware of this idea for a while that all the heavy hitters have been off dealing with, quote, bigger threats. Uh, But we haven't really discussed 
like what that means exactly. Like, I don't think it's the machine army, and I doubt <laughs> that it's leftover Nilbog creatures. Seems possible that it's the war with cheat somehow, but okay, what are they doing? Like, it, it's still basically a cold war with Earthsea, so it doesn't really fit that Chevalier would need to go smash things on behalf of of that you know front. So 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 what what is this? What is this bigger threats that, yeah. that we keep alluding to? And the, I mean, the answer is we have no idea. And I think that like, I think Wildbow is kind of committed to holding us at the street level caping for as long as possible. Right. Obviously, the, the stakes of this story are going to rise as we go along. But we are with Breakthrough and Breakthrough is kind of a street level team. So even when we jump into an interlude or two that sees kind of the bigger scope, we still don't have the full story. And I like that we're holding on to that for as long as possible. Um, yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah. And Crystal is still missing. We know that. Yeah. Missing. Probably on a mission or dead. Yeah. I mean, hopefully not dead. No, I, that, that, that wouldn't happen in this story. No, certainly not. No. no. So Tristan then interestingly kind of brings us back to the weird emotional uh, footing. Yeah. <laughs> because he, he, he takes this opportunity, takes this opening to, to that Victoria created by talking about her power to bring up his and Byron's powers and how they've been in flux. And we actually noted previously on the show that his stone seemed really weak when they were fighting trial and error. And apparently now he demonstrates his stone is much, much stronger and more badass looking. Uh, yeah, that's, he's like, this will be useful in combat. Sh sure. Tristan, um, uh -huh. it's not good for the state of your relationship with your brother though. Like I love, like you could take this line where he says right now I'm stronger. Byron is weaker. And if he's talking about his powers, of course, but you can take that and just, yeah, this is their current, right. th their current deal with the two of them. Um, it's a sentence with a lot of ominous to it, ominousness to it, Matt. And yeah. and I feel like we've been talking about these guys for months now because it probably has been months, but their shit is coming to a head like it's happening. And as much as I don't want to agree with with your chocolate bullshit, I, I do think I do think I'm starting to think that Byron feels like. Whatever's whatever's going to break between the two of them, he's probably going to be the one that instigates it. Um, he's getting weaker. Tristan is getting stronger. Um, there's a lot of fear here. He's taking over and, and it seems like he's going to be the one to snap rather than the other way around. Yeah. I mean, I still, I still agree. I mean, I, I still feel like, and it's difficult to quantify, but I feel like that there's, there's something sinister going on with Byron. I mean, I, I, I saw people talking about this in, in the Reddit the other day and, and referring it, referring to it as like the, the Matt's chocolate thing. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, okay, I mean, I, I, I get it. Like, I appreciate it. But, but like, really, this is about the fact that Byron was the one who put a fucking hit out on his brother. Like he's, he's right. not a, he's not a saint. Okay. And the chocolate thing was 75% a joke, but also like, I just, I'm just so suspicious of this character. So yeah, no, um, I, I think I like, yeah, the chocolate thing is a fun joke that I love doing and will never, ever, ever stop. Of but course. the establishing scene for who Byron is as a character, you're absolutely right, was I'm going to kill you. <laughs> like, yeah. that's like like the, the the prologue served as like 
the establishing beats of our character. We're going to define who these people are at the start of the story so we can then see where they're going to go. And who Byron was at the start of the story was. I'm going to murder you unless yeah. and yeah. we don't we don't we 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 were making assumptions as to what the unless was. But right. I think I think they're intelligent assumptions. So, yeah, I mean, like that's that's putting him on a sinister foot. So I don't think you're totally off. Um, I thought the chocolate thing was hilarious because he's just <laughs> eating a chocolate bar. But, yeah, no, I mean, there's there's definitely more to this. And I think Tristan has been pretty forthright with his troublesome past um it, byron is it's much more mysterious yeah right so uh all the characters talk abstractly about powers for a short bit uh and then chris flips the fuck out yeah and it, it is the way in which he flips out that i find so interesting he he has decided now that because victoria is sharing and then tristan shares and then rain shares a little bit of something and then ashley gives a little bit of information too the 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 group has declared the leaders of the group have declared this share time and now he is expected implicitly to share his information too and it's not something he wants to do and it's not he refuses and he's pissed off about it and Victoria immediately connects this back to her whole thing about distorted perspectives. He's like, this is the lesson he took from my reveal about myself. Like this is the lesson he took from my truth, which is I'm demanding your truth, which is I think not what she was doing at all. Um, Correct. But yeah, yeah, he's, he's very agitated and he's very barbed about this whole thing. And you know what, Matt? I think this is kind of bullshit. (laughs) I mean, I do think that he's annoyed at the team uh-huh. And and he does feel on some level that there's an expectation that he reveals his stuff. But I do not think that is the primary thing that is bothering him from all this. We hear later in this chapter that he has some kind of past history with Amy. And we do know that the way that Victoria framed what happened to her was all very much offensively pointed at Amy did this. This is her. This is what she did. Wasn't it so terrible? And yes, that's all true. Right. But um I think this is probably more of what's bothering Chris. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm, I agree that it's not, there's much more going on than what he has, than what he is targeting with his words here. Yeah. This is a clever, I think scapegoat (laughs) for, for his reason for being so upset to me. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I I can't really conjecture too much actually that I, I just, uh, yeah, I just agree with you. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, he so storms happens when out. You read the next chapter, and you can't. You got to be careful about what oh. you say. Well, that, that that's see, I can't even answer as to whether that's true or not because then I'd be <laughs> <laughs> giving you information. But I'll read it tomorrow. Okay, fine. So he storms out into the storm, um, and they have a fairly classic. The team has a fairly classic reaction. Everyone agrees that Chris was behaving badly, but they all want to give him space to sort out what's going on rather than pursuing him and trying to find out what's bothering him themselves and they don't want to put any pressure on him and so on and so forth. Yeah, this is great. I think it's great to do that, but they keep doing it. Yeah. Like this is what we talked about from the very beginning with this team. They're supportive almost to a fault. They circle their wagons and protect each other, but they never or rarely actually confront each other on their shit. And I know Chris is going through a lot and, and space is good. Sometimes, sometimes you need space, but, but come on, like he, someone needs to confront him about the stuff. It's going bad. Like he's the X factor in this group and we don't understand him. And 
for a group that is all about communication and and defeating ignorance, he's this big unknown. Right, because at a certain like it, at a certain point, it's gonna have to be revealed. Right. You know? I mean, the, the, you, yeah, it's just you can't continue to operate like this and have someone who is just completely stonewalling about what's going on with them. Right. And, and like, I don't want to, I don't want to get it across that. I don't think like sometimes space is good and you need space and you need people to back off when you're feeling a certain way, but it just feels like every time Chris gets worked up, that's what happens. And, and it's like, that's not a solution. That's just a, a, that's just, you're just putting things off. Right. And, and if they did push him on it, the thing is he'd probably leave the team. And that's actually like a huge red flag, like to, to right. know that. And they're right. probably all aware of that. They probably all know that if, if they really pushed him, he would just be like, peace, I'm, I'm not part of the team anymore. And it's like, yeah, OK, that's a that's a huge warning sign that something yeah. is deeply wrong. Yeah. 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 And I think I think that the, the importance of this moment is kind of emphasized by some of the descriptions of his walkout. Right. Like this is not Chris has stormed off many times before. This is a very specific storm off. And look, look how look how his storm off is described out into the late morning darkness and the torrential wet. The wind stirred in the room, saw others stand back or catching papers. The wind that stirred and before they could blow away and scatter, the cool wind made me very aware of my soaked clothes. This is not just I walked away in a huff. This is I'm walking away into a torrential downpour and the my walk away causes chaos within the room the wind blows in and blows papers everywhere and the whole thing is in chaos we're, we're emphasizing the importance of this this walk away as uh, not only a trend but an, an increased escalation of a trend yes i i like that i like that escalation it's it's like yeah he's yeah no that's perfect perfect um and we cut from this um, ominously to the meeting with Goddess, and she is walking to a kind of gazebo thing situated halfway up a hillside, and she seems to be uh, keeping the rainstorm away from herself telekinetically. Uh, probably there may be something else going on there. Yeah, just like Victoria's wretch kept the rain off of her. Mm-hmm. I'm just gonna draw connections between these two characters all night long. That sounds good. All night. She walked with audible, powerful footsteps that shouldn't have echoed like they did, given the environment. I could hear her, and I could hear the scuff of shoe on shoe. I knew those footsteps. She never picked her feet up enough when she walked places. That's uh, that's some writing right there, dog. It's it's beautiful. The, the whole. The whole setup and establishment here is just wonderful. Like we were talking about, Wildbow is fully aware of the weight of this moment. This is what everyone has been waiting for. This is what we knew was inevitable. And he's not afraid to elevate the text to capture that moment. Like, look, look at like, like we have these the image of like the first cold of the season came in. We have this gazebo on the halfway up a, a, a it's not a mountain. It's like a big hill, right? Yeah. Um, we have in the middle of this gazebo, there's a fire and around the fire, there are buckets of sand and shovels sitting at the ready beneath tables and in cabinets that have been built into the benches, the fire pit, a fire burned, keeping its flames down as the wind seeped between plexiglass and stone column. I love the weight and the imagery of all this so much, like carrying forward that, that thread from last week about, you know, rain and, 
and fire. We have it's it's pouring out. Um, it's cold. Everyone's wet. And here they are waiting for goddess to approach. And they have this protective fire here that's keeping them warm. Um, but th- but then we add these buckets of sand and shovels, right? These are things meant to snuff out the fire. So there's this this immediate image of like if fire is good and warmth, then we sh- point out images of things that are made to to drown the fire. And it's like, oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. Yeah. It's like hovering threat. Yep. So right off the bat, goddess who introduces herself as Bianca shortly uh, is aloof and informal. And uh, she says, I would thank you for coming, but what's the use? L- the lady in blue asked. She reached out in the direction of the fire and it swelled in size. So I think this is like the most brilliant paragraph in the whole chapter. And I'm going to tell you why in a bit. But first, like, is this goddess basically at the very start acknowledging that they're not really even there? I think um, so. I, I think it is too. And I think we'll get into the reveal that they're not there at the end and why I think it works wonderfully. But I think it's it's so clever that that's like it's just hidden right in front of you. But um, the text has built up this grand moment and, and goddess in this moment is so not what you'd expect. Like, I love yeah. that she introduces herself as Bianca. Like, she's not goddess. She's just I am Bianca. I'm person um it's just this wonderful subversion of everything you thought like you're expecting this this person who like talks like kind of like ashley does at times right like this person that is like obsessed with her own importance and significance and talks like that and it's just not that at all and you see you're kind of immediately put off balance yeah i think someone who has real power doesn't need to stand on the trappings of power like that yeah and then you have this moment where goddess reaches out and makes the fire bigger. Um, basically declares to everyone standing there that I am in control of this thing. And our, our fun fire water metaphor, I think extends to this, right? Like this, this battle between cold and warmth and fire was a good symbol for our team because it represents that beacon, the light, truth, warmth, goodness, and we have our meeting here with goddess and our team is, is like in a badass V formation standing by this fire and goddess just casually reaches up and shows that the very thing that this team, that w- this image that was so good for them, this idea of truth of light, the beacon, the warmth, that very thing is under goddess's control as well. She controls that that's hers. Like as much as she makes the rain, like not touch her, she controls the fire as well. And I like without even having to say anything to me, that's you guys are fucked. Like before we even get to the reveal of how fucked they actually are, like this is I am in control. Everything that you thought was protecting you and everything that you thought that you stood for and that was good and warm and and light. Um, that's I got that. That's me. Yeah. And, and this, I mean, I feel kind of dumb for not having noticed this, or maybe I did notice it and then forgot, but, but, and, and I don't mean to like mash symbols together that are potentially symbols that are meant to not be together, but, but actually the, the original like orange golden light symbol was Scion and, and the, the end of the world and terrible things. Um, and it's only kind of in, in this in this part of the story that we've been in recently where 
where we've found kind of other meanings for for fire, heat, and and, and imagery like that. Um, so in, in this chapter, actually, um, goddess says silence is golden with you know her her hand sign, and Victoria thinks about how there are bad connotations to to gold. Um, and, and I don't mean to say that orange is the same color as gold, but like if you're if you're putting like warm colors together, um, I, I certainly think that there's definitely a lot of complexity and and not necessarily pure goodness to that to that uh, to that fire and 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 uh, orange and or gold symbol. See, that's the problem is I don't know if I'm mashing together a whole bunch of different symbols. Um, Maybe uh, like here's here's how I'm seeing it like like the gold, the light, the brightness was this negative connotation. It was scion it was gold morning. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, then Victoria in her efforts to make the world a better place kind of took it back a little bit. Like that idea of, um, you're throwing a bonfire. You're, 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 I don't remember the exact line, but that she's going to throw a flame onto a bonfire to drown it out. Right. Yeah. to, To drop a, drop a bonfire on the, on the on the smaller yeah whatever yeah yeah so like this idea that then that's kind of that's kind of almost taking back the symbol right like like we're taking this thing that had this connotation of terrible uh, of of our horrible past and we're taking it back we're taking it back and we're saying this is ours now we're going to use this and we're going to be a beacon for the world and this this thing that reminds everyone of terribleness is going to be owned by us again and and the the triumph in that and then goddess comes and it's like nope yeah <laughs> it's like nope i am the, the that's that those symbols those ideas um i'm gonna take that back from i'm gonna take that back from you like now we're gonna take it back and and we're I, i'm gonna show you that 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 beacon that you had um is is gone now. yeah yeah you're not the bonfire i'm the bonfire right yeah yeah um i, I mean i just like on a bit of a metal level like it's this this i think is the fun part of of symbols and writing is like us here um working through this and maybe contradicting ourselves or or disagreeing slightly about things or or changing our minds about things like it that's that's to me the fun part of it of having symbols and writing and interpreting symbols and writing it's it's not like the eyes of dr tj eckelberg symbolize the view of god yeah. That's the answer. Write that on the test. Right. It's it's like no, you have to, you have to play with it, and you have to keep. You have to read the text, and and maybe your opinion will change as the text goes on. And I mean, that's that's the difference between symbol and allegory, right? Like mm-hmm. allegory is is specific. Like this thing means this thing. Symbol is to me this thing means this thing. To you, it might mean something else. And that's that's the wonderfulness of if you can argue for why your symbol makes sense, then it's it's yeah. it, then it does like yeah. and that's it's it's it, that's what it means for you and that's why i love talking about stories and books and this stuff because yeah i mean like someone else could be listening to everything we just said and be like no nah, i don't i don't think it's yeah, any it's just a fire all. yeah i think it's just a fire and it could i mean like that's a it is absolutely just a fire <laughs> but it is also so much more yeah and it's it's fun to think about it as meaning more than that yeah right right so yeah, Amy is there and she is, well, you can say a lot about how she is actually. She seems to be pretty unaware of the level to which Victoria is still messed up about what happened. 
it's very reminiscent about Carol's um, attitude. Her attitude, Amy's attitude seems to say, it's good to see you. I feel real bad about all that stuff. And I just hope we can clear it up, you know, just clear up this unpleasantness. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I, I like I like comparing it to to Carol's attitude of the whole thing. Right. Like like this, I, this general idea that nobody gets even the person that caused this does not get how much it did to Victoria. Um, but and she yeah, I mean, like to all like I'm sure Amy's going through a lot of shit. I'm sure this meeting is incredibly nervous for her, too, and she's just doing the best she can. But yeah, I mean, there seems to be like a level of um, I I'm just excited about this reunion. Yeah. Yeah, I hope this goes okay with right. a com- complete like lack of awareness that it is not going to go okay. Yeah, and uh, like so throughout all of this, I don't want to spend like we could spend a whole podcast on the, just this scene by itself yeah. probably, but the way the text demonstrates how bad Victoria is doing about all this is so so good because it's not just her talking about her breathing; it is that for sure. But she's like contradicting herself, and she's like. In this one moment, she says, I couldn't call her my sister because that familiarity combined with the relative proximity upset me on a deeper level. I couldn't call her Amy for much the same reason. From Amelia, I felt my skin crawl. And then the next thing she asks her, should we call you Amy, Amelia or Panacea? Like and that like on the surface is just like a blatant contradiction. It's like I couldn't call her Amy. I won't call her Amy. And then later so should we call you Amy? And I think that's just showing like how like out of sorts she is. She's just like, she's not, she's not acting rationally anymore. Yeah. Like this isn't really an important question. Um, no, like, like, what like does no it one matter? except her is thinking about this. Right. And that's, yeah. I mean, I'm not, I'm not being hard on her. It's just like, yeah, she's, she's not, uh, able, she's having a really hard time just being here, much less actually being like a functional member of the group here. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, yeah, so Bianca says that a power was taken from her, which is news to us, actually, specifically that someone has her power, and she also explains a bit about her nature, uh, if we take her at her word, of course. The people of her world seem to put more resources into understanding powers, which is apparently why she exists. She claims to have an advanced understanding of how powers work and claims to be able to help um, our more powers fucked team members, um, including Sveta potentially. And of course, Amy says that she can help too. I, I could help too, Amy said. My heart sank into my ankles, plunging through and leaving cold toxicity in its wake curling through my midsection. Oh, so <laughs> I like this is this is all I it's so hard to get get my head around why all this is so good, but the idea that it's everything is targeted to a people like it's like Sveta, where you're going to solve your problem. And, and then like, we're going to solve all your people's problem. And then Amy later says, Victoria, I'm going to leave with goddess. If you help us, I'll go away. Like it's all targeted specifically to get every single thing that each and every one of them want. And like, even so, even with that, Victoria is still like reeling. Like I love that imagery of my heart sank into my ankles, plunging through and leaving cold toxicity in its wake, curling through my midsection. The the specificity of of just a feeling rolling through her body here is so wonderful. Yeah. And yeah. like 
like this is this is like we're we're in the middle of revelation and and Victoria is only like kind of tangentially aware of it, right? Like we're getting little beats of of new information like this and then Amy says hi to Chris and like she's like reeling and and like unable to process any of this stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um and and thus, you know, a lot of this stuff is kind of she's not able to kind of keep up with it because in the midst of this conversation, it becomes clear that Goddess is operating on a timetable. She knows that Balefor and Mama Mathers have just been taken like like very recently. And she yeah. needs these she needs things to happen now. She needs their cooperation now. Um, and uh, Bianca, the spoiled prep school girl, is tired of waiting. So before we jump into the mother of all conclusions, I want to talk about that for a bit. Like, okay. so that this moment where Victoria has this realization, um, that this person she's talking to is like a girl from an overly formal private school or college bucking the confines, spoiled and dangerous. And this is so like, again, this is so different from the goddess we thought we were going to get like a spoiled college girl, um, to me, like there is, there's a very specific line we can draw between Victoria and goddess. They are both people who seem to, um, want order and control. Um, they're both people that, um, they're both have a thing with Amy. Um, but I, I, I see this as like the, what glory girl could have possibly become like, like if, if everything had happened, okay for Victoria and, and the bad things in her life never happened to her, let's say Dean didn't die. Um, obviously she didn't get turned into a horrible monster. Um, she would have kind of still been the glory girl that we saw her as, and maybe eventually would have gone to private school and would have been, would have ended up this kind of spoiled and dangerous person. That's like, pushing envelopes in crazy ways um, and punching too hard. Like this is goddess's version of punching too hard, I guess. And I, I think it's, I, I want to make sure going through the rest of the story, we we keep this line between these two characters, but I think they are supposed to reflect each other in some ways. Oh yeah, no, absolutely. I, I think, um, I think that's, that's absolutely intended here that, that uh, they, they both kind of want the same things. They just are going about it in completely incompatible ways. And that's, that's been, I think, set up for some time now, actually. Yeah. This, this idea that, that what does goddess want? Well, she wants probably order and, and civilization and to, to, to stop the, the villains from, from ruining everything, you know, um, it's just not, not in kind of the democratic way that Victoria envisions it. Yep. And so this chapter wraps up with uh, Bianca saying, uh, I'll recruit my assistants and I won't be attacking alone. Then there was a moment and it was like she'd said a word with monumental emphasis. My heart skipped a beat. 64 miles away, we were still in the headquarters. Cameras and projectors put images of us in the gazebo-like structure. But she'd known that. She'd realized it right away and been put off by it. And then Breakthrough is under her spell. Oh uh, yeah. The, yeah. Uh, the, the, the actual end of this chapter is like her saying, um, I ruled an entire world and that's not a takeover that happens if I need to be where I assert my power. Mm -hmm. Let the hounds come baying. It's such a badass one. Like yeah. we talked about at the beginning of this whole conversation, she wasn't this kind of lofty 
person. But as she kind of seizes control, her her kind of talking shifts a little bit like this idea of let the hounds come bang. This is the kind of thing I expected to hear from God as yeah. she talked. Um, but yeah, it's just like so we get this. It's kind of played to us as a reveal that, you know, they are not there in the gazebo. They are back home at their base. And and the reason why I think this reveal works for us is because it was never really hidden. Like the, 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 those whole section starts off with them watching goddess walk up the steps on video screens. And like, they make it very blatant that they're watching, you know, monitors of them walking up the stairs of, of presumably Kenzie's cameras. And then they get there and there's like never any mention about like the monitors and the equipment. And like, that. that's like, I get the assumption you make while you're reading is, I guess, I guess they brought, like maybe she's on her phone or they brought a monitor with them or something, but none of that is ever mentioned. But like, and then there's the, the line we talked about when goddess first comes there where she's like actually hinting very openly that I'm not actually meeting you because you're not actually here. Um, mm-hmm. So it's this, it's this like misdirect that doesn't, it doesn't cheat. Like that's, we, we've talked about times in the past and in, in movies and in these in, in worm where I felt like the misdirect cheated a little bit to hide stuff from you um, to make a, a moment land. This isn't cheating. It's just right in front of your face. You just didn't notice it because it's just hidden just enough. Yeah. And I think it, 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 it works because it it's it's not cheating and it makes this impact land so much. It's like, OK, yeah. you guys were safe. You were careful. You stayed away. You weren't there but it doesn't matter. Yeah. Yeah. It was hidden in the sense that there was an alternate interpretation that you made, but that's your fault. (laughs) Right. Exactly. Um, the, the brain just went. Yeah. Like, like, like it's it's like your brain made connections and, and made the story make sense for you under, uh, an interpretation that was not the correct one. Well, and also it's the trick worked on our character too. And, And I think what gets, what, what irritates you is when, like, if Victoria had got what what Goddess was saying, but didn't let us in on it, even though we're in her head, mm-hmm. that would have kind of that kind of messes with the first person thing that's going yeah. on. And and Wildbow usually doesn't do that actually, because um, I think it does kind of throw you off and 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 mess with your sense that you're that you're close to this character, that you are this character. Yeah, I um, think you're right. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, that's, that's it. The, that's these two badass chapters. Um, <laughs> our, our team is not in good shape, Matt. No, and this is a bad thing. Yeah. This is a bad outcome. Very bad. It's way, All right. like, I was like, oh, this Amy meeting is going to go real bad. And I didn't think it was going to be, oh, goddess now controls your entire team bad. Right. Yeah. I mean, that was an option, right? But it, it, I didn't <laughs> think it would happen. Right. Right. Yeah. All right. So let's do a little bit of name game here. I'm, right. I'm kind of excited about this one, actually. So Bianca um, actually it means white. It's the Italian cognate uh, for Blanche. Um, and that's very interesting because she's the woman in blue. So mm-hmm. blue and white. Blue blue covers white. Uh, ice, water, white, <sighs> blue. <sighs> water. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't. No, uh, I like that, though. I like this idea that this woman in white, like white has a a, a colder connotation, uh, a woman mm-hmm. in blue. But her name means. Yeah, that definitely has a, a cold kind of lack of of light connotation. Yeah. And also it is kind of like a prep school type name. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> Whatever right. that means. Yeah. I am um, very interested in learn more, learning more about her past. Um, yeah, me too. And we'll see how much it it 
reflects on Victoria. Yeah. Um, so these just kind of occurred to me to, to think about because of the question that Victoria asked. Yeah. Uh, Amy and Amelia, they're not the same. They're no. like, like, like Amy kind of is a short, shortening of Amelia, but also it's a different name. Like it, it, they're, they're two different names. So Amelia actually means work or, uh, or industriousness with like a connotation of fertility. Um, Amy means beloved. Huh. I wonder why Victoria wouldn't want to call her beloved. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I like that the Amelia name actually kind of works as like a, as like a, you know, uh, an allusion to the fact that like, you know, fertility and industriousness kind of, uh, does have these connotations of this basically capacity to create and make, make life flourish and, and manipulate life and fertility directly. Um, yeah, yeah, that's very true. Yeah. And and then of course the, the nickname Amy has the connotation of beloved, which is what she is or was to Victoria. Yeah. Because of the things she did. Yeah, those things. Yeah. So, and I mean, it's so um like it's it's it fits so well. And I'm glad I'm glad you keyed into that. And I, I like I, the text almost draws you to that by making this very clear distinction between Victoria saying, I cannot call her Amy, and then specifically asking what she wants to be called. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And it didn't like Amy's been used as a short for Amelia, but but yeah, I I knew for a fact that Amy meant its own thing, so I yeah. had to had to figure that out. Yeah. All right, so discussion question this week. Uh, so, Wildbow's ability to set up intimidating big bads is a strong suit of his works. Discuss the techniques he uses to accomplish this. And uh, when when it comes to the Reddit thread, uh, you can you know feel free to cite things from Twig or Pact, but obviously be sure to use spoiler tags for those things. Um, yeah, because I will not be reading yeah. them. Because I was absolutely thinking about Twig when I thought of this question, by well, the way. <laughs> well, great, so, Matt. That's very helpful. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, that's good. And on that note, uh, that's all we got for you this week on We've Got Ward. You guys are all part of this show, so feel free to provide us with advice, questions, or thoughts on this week's reading. You can reach us via email at gotwormpod at gmail.com or on Twitter at gotwormpod. My personal Twitter is at scottdaily85 and Matt's is at beloved. If you're not already subscribed to We've Got Ward, we strongly recommend you do so and never miss an episode. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, Google Play, and pretty much anywhere else in the world you can listen to podcasts. And as always, you can find this, all the other podcasts we do, and all of our writing over at doofmedia.com. Not a new episode of the Doofcast this week, unfortunately. Um, We had some stuff. Obviously, this episode is late. We had some stuff come up, and it kind of shuffled our schedule around. But we should be back next week with another episode of that. Um, We do... If you're listening to this the day it comes out, tonight at 9.30 Central Time, it's book club time. We're going to be talking about John Dies at the End on our book club over on our YouTube page. It'll be a live streaming discussion where we talk about that. And if you can't make that, the audio for that will be available um, sometime after that. I usually try to get it out Saturday, but I don't always do it. Um, But if you have read John Dies at the End and want to come hang out and talk about it with us, do that. Yeah, that's extremely fun, and and we're actually interactive with those. So if you show up and you and you chat with us on the on the live stream, we will respond, and you'll be immortalized in the podcast. Yeah. And if you like any of these shows and you want to support them, consider donating to our Patreon account, patreon.com/doofmedia. 
you can donate a dollar a month or whatever else you can afford. Supporting us on Patreon gives you tons of great bonuses like voting in our quarterly fan art contests, like the one we just wrapped up, Q&A sessions, uh, in access to live streams like uh, this one, or um, obviously the book club, which you don't need the Patreon for. Yeah, this um, one that just crashed in the middle of it. And so yeah, this, this one is awesome. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Whoops. Yeah, that's YouTube's fault. Yep. And our excellent Discord chat. Uh, and special thanks to new Bidoof's um, Doc at the $1 level and Andrew M. at the $3 level. And new Doof Troop member Andy at the $10 level. Um, Doof Squad! Thanks. Thanks so much. We appreciate that. Um, that's that's really awesome to see. And as always, of course, make sure you go over to Wildbow's Patreon, patreon.com slash Wildbow, and donate to him as well. This is his world. We're just playing in it. And if you cannot afford to donate right now, that's absolutely okay. You can instead head to a gazebo in the middle of a rainstorm and, you know, just uh, mind control some children. Um or you can head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a rating and review. No new reviews to read again this week, Matt. So uh, we got some got some work. Some people send some reviews, please. We love reading them. Even if they're bad, it's okay if they're bad. I'll cry, yep. but I'll read it. Yep. Reaching out across space right now into your mind. Go you, to you the actu- review. You actually want to do this, I think. <laughs> No, that's all we got for this week. We'll see you right here next week for chapters three and four of Arc 9 Gleaming. Bye-bye.